So we're in a series looking at um, Jesus behaving badly. We're, um, we're exploring, um, I don't know about you, but growing up in church, um, I tended, to, there were always passages that like I never really heard taught a whole lot. Um, and, and then now having been um, a minister for 17 years here at Timberline Church, uh, I find that I'm attracted to certain passages. <laughs> I'm attracted to certain portions of Scripture. Um, and there are other ones that I'm just, frankly, I don't know. Maybe I'm uncomfortable with them. They're weird. Uh, or I just don't know what to make of them. Or I just kind of look at them and be like, what was that about? That was odd. You know what I mean by that? <clears throat> and so um, what, what we've been doing is looking at some passages that are kind of like that in Scripture. Um, we looked at this one, week one, where Jesus seems to call uh, a woman a dog. That doesn't go over very well. I don't care what culture you're in. Um, last week, we looked at this uh, Jesus' in encounter with these people actually uh, ends up killing a herd of pigs, which is a strange thing. Um, and, and it's just weird. It's just weird. And so... Um, I think in doing this, maybe, it kind of helps us look at the idea of maybe I can get a fuller orbed picture of Jesus. You know what I mean by that? Like I can see parts of them that I wouldn't choose to, or I wouldn't normally think about because I just don't tend to choose those passages in a way. Um, and so tonight we're going to be looking at um, John chapter, I'm sorry, Luke chapter 13. So, oh, there we go. I got it. Uh, Luke chapter 13, so if you have your Bibles, turn them on or open them up. I'll have the <clears throat> scripture passage up here as well, but hopefully you, you have those. So the context here, Jesus, and, and we're looking at a tiny vignette amidst of like a full day of teaching, and there's much broader context looking at the entire chapter, but we're just going to look at one tiny little vignette here where Luke records Jesus, and um, the, the, the audience is not just his disciples, we're also told there are crowds, like large amounts of crowds. Um, that keeps going off, doesn't it? I'm sorry. Hopefully that'll pop back up here. Let me know if there's anything that I should do or try. Uh, Luke chapter 13, if you, if you have your Bibles, just starting in verse 1, it says, Now there were some present at that time, who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. Now, what he's saying here, we don't know exactly what happened, but what we know is that some group from Galilee, um, Jewish people, went to the temple where you make a sacrifice, and it's very likely that these people were uh, revolutionaries. Josephus, in fact, tells us that Galileans were famously well-known for being revolutionary. Like, they could get incited to revolution like that. And so we're just told, <clears throat> this group of people, that, that Pilate maybe had seen them at the temple, and there was a massacre at the temple. There was this killing of them while uh, they are making their sacrifices. Uh, verse 2, Jesus answered, kind of an interesting question. Jesus answered and said, Do you think that the Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? And then he answers his own question. He says, I tell you no. 
And then he says the weird, but unless you repent, you too will all perish. Verse 4. Or, and then so he brings up another group of people, another example, someone that these people they would have known of apparently. Or how about the 18 who died in the tower of Siloam when it fell on them? Do you think they were more guilty than the others living in Jerusalem? I tell you, no. And then again, same answer. But unless you repent, you too will perish. So two tragedies are mentioned in verses 1 through 5. And the same question emerges. Were the people who died in these tragic events, one was done by a person, the other was kind of, what would you call it, a a natural evil, we use some language like an act of God. And you think about all the, you know, think about the, the fires going on around us. Think about the, the, the natural evils that we encounter regularly. And the question is, were these people somehow morally rep, more reprehensible than other people? Is that why, you know, is that why they got caught in the fire? Is that why their car crashed? Is that why they, you know what I mean, right? Fill in the blank. Is that, is that why that happened to me? Is it because there's something worse about me or something I'm guilty of? These questions come to mind. Did God judge them because they had excessive sin in their life? Did their life not go well because they had just whatever it might be? It's interesting. Um, a number of years ago, if you know George Barna, he is a public opinion pollster. And uh, Barna had conducted some research in which he, uh, it was, he asked a scientifically selected cross-section of adults this question. If you could ask God only one question and you knew he would give you an answer, what would you ask? It's interesting. The, the top response was people who said, why is there pain and suffering in the world, it would be the questions that are coming out of the minds of the family, of the people whose blood was shed, mixed with the blood of the sacrifice, the people, the family who were crushed in the Tower of Siloam. It's it's this, it's a, it's a human question. It's something that we all struggle with and wonder about. And being merely being a Christian, it doesn't solve it like immediately, right? Just by saying, "Well, I, I believe in God." Well, I, that's the problem. <laughs> How could God allow that? What sort of world are we in? There's a, it's, it's called a theodicy. A theodicy is a justification that you might give for how God could exist, and yet all of this stuff you know, happens and allow it. And, and tonight is not going to be a full theodicy. It's not going to be a, um, a time on the problem of evil in depth at all. We are going to, we're going to touch on it a little bit. I've, I've taught hour long courses on the problem of evil, but we just don't have the ability to do that here. But I do want us to think about evil in general and some of these categories and maybe help us think through some of it here. Um, or you think about this comes from Psalm 73. Ever felt this way before? The psalmist says, "Why? this is what the wicked are like. Their lives rock, <laughs> right? Everything goes smoothly for that, for that person. Always carefree, they go on a, a, amassing wealth. 
Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and have washed my hands in innocence. Again, these are questions that the biblical authors are struggling with. I love the, the level of transparency in Scripture. It's not whitewashed. It's, it's not, boy, these people have it together. If anything, it's like, these people are a mess, <laughs> right? Um, and Scripture's not saying, be like these people most of the time. It's saying, they're like you, and they're trying to follow God and walk with him. So here's what I want to look at. Um, first of all, as we think about evil, there, there are two kinds of evil in life that, that we encounter. And in fact, this passage gives us the two categories, interestingly enough. The first kind of evil we encounter is what's called moral evil. Moral evil. Um, that's Pilate killing the Gentiles if they weren't guilty. Uh, moral evil is people's inhumanity to other people. Does that make sense? Uh, usually motivated by, motivated by hate, uh, greed, whatever it might be. That's pretty obvious we see that. The second category of evil, as we think about it, is what's called natural evil. An uh, example of that is this tower falling. We don't get the indication that someone put a bomb there or anything. It just collapsed. So these would be disasters uh, you know, brought on by natural causes, floods, earthquakes, that sort of thing. It would be di- diseases. Um, it would be congenital disabilities. It would be an accident or an injury like what we have in this case right here. But natural evils fall into that category. And when we think about evil, every worldview attempts to answer or make sense of, like, what is evil, you know? Um, if, if you were to speak to a, uh, certain groups of Hindis, non, non-dualistic Hinduism anyway, they, they would say, well, evil's, evil's not real. It's an illusion. Uh, or if you spoke to someone in uh, Christian science or new thought metaphysics, there would, it would be a dismissal of evil. It's not even real. It's somehow illusory. If you speak to a, a Buddhist, they would, say, they would recognize that, yes, it's real. It's just a brute fact of reality. You, you can't look into it. You don't know. Um, and all you can do is just detach yourself from the world, and, and, and hopefully you, you escape it eventually. Or there's the, the, the Muslim response, which is, well, Allah has simply assigned this. To us. So everything that happens is meant to be. It's because Allah desires, He wants that to happen. Or you might think about um, atheistic naturalism or atheistic materialism, which doesn't, it recognizes things that are bad and unlucky, but evil is not a category for someone who reduces everything to the material world. So uh, kind of a great way of summing up, Richard Dawkins, you might have heard this sort of summary statement of him, uh, from him a number of years ago, when kind of asked about uh, injustice, evil. He says, in a universe of blind physical forces and genetic replications, some people are going to get hurt and some people are going to get lucky. And you won't find any rhyme or reason between it. Just the way the ball rolls. <laughs> but there's no ethical assessment of it in that way. Yet there's something in all those responses that I would suggest we recoil about. We hear those, we go, mm, no, that, that doesn't quite get it. 
my experience of evil, it's real. And I have to have an explanation that gives it enough credence, doesn't say it's just there, suck it up. <laughs> I, I have to have some, I, I have this sense of why, why are things this way? I have a sense that things are deeply wrong in the world, and I don't know why, but they're deeply wrong. I think of the, the words of the poet Dylan Thomas. You might have heard these words before. Do not go gentle into that good night. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. There's something he recognizes that death shouldn't happen. Somehow he recognizing, recognizes something is profoundly wrong. And what I so love about the Christian faith is that it affirms that intuition. Something's wrong. Not okay. <laughs> Not good. It recognizes there's something wrong. And I would suggest that its answer is unique among the worldviews of the world. So in Luke chapter 13, let me go back to that here. In Luke chapter 13, Jesus tells us that we cannot assume that natural disasters are a judgment from God. First thing on so many Christians' minds and lips, oftentimes, you know, we hear when there's some natural disasters, like, maybe this is God judging that group, you know, that sort of thing. Jesus dismisses that. He says, you can't go there. You're not allowed to do that. Um, that was the common idea within the Jewish world. In fact, if you look at um, John chapter 9, do you remember this story? Jesus heals a man born blind, and they see the guy... And remember, it says, as they went along, he saw a man blind from birth. First question out of his Jewish students' minds is they ask, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Which, first thought in my mind, I was like, wait a minute, he was born blind. Like, what sin did he do before? You know, that's always like a question rattling around in my head. Like, why? That's kind of a weird question to ask. But that's the immediate thought. Who's at fault? Let's, let's point to who did it. And Jesus, he... he he puts that off the table. He says, no, he didn't sin. Um, parents didn't sin. And then he says, but God is going to use this to expand his kingdom. And then he heals, heals the man. So in, in Luke 13, Jesus tells us that we cannot assume that natural disasters are specific judgments of God. In fact, um, in the Old Testament... When, when God does bring judgment on a nation, sometimes Israel, most of the time Israel, or one of Israel's neighbors, and he accomplishes it with uh, a, a plague or some sort of natural disaster, he always accompanies it with a prophetic word. There would always be a prophet who would warn it's coming, number one, and then once it's there, explain what's happening in this natural disaster, and, and give it sort of a theological interpretation. Here's what God is saying to you through this. So with the absence of a very clear prophetic word today, it would be extremely presumptuous for any, anyone, a follower of Christ or not, to assume that a natural disaster takes place, that it's, you know, it's some specific um, judgment of God on an individual or on the people who were killed in this situation. So here's what I want to do is just, um, I, I just want to make some observations 
about what we call uh, natural evil. Or if you on your insurance policy, I had a I had a, I had to do an insurance claim this summer. Do you guys remember in what was it? It was before July. It was uh, it was March. It was March, and we just had that horrible windstorm for like half an hour. Do you remember that? It was just horrendous. And our backyard was just destroyed. Like our trampoline was wrapped over the fence, and we had a pergola that just went through the absolutely destroyed it. And and the policy is like an act of God policy, right? So this this is language and it's categories that 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 have been with us for a long time because our insurance companies are using it's an act of God. God did it, kind of thing. So um, some observations about that, just kind of biblically and philosophically, what are some observations? Um, Because we don't talk a lot about this. This isn't something that we don't say a whole lot about, (laughs) these sorts of things. So, So let's kind of consider that. First of all, number one, we're not saying that the acts of nature are evil necessarily. A tornado is an amoral thing. There's nothing evil per se about a tornado right, or a thunderstorm, uh, or an earthquake, um, you, know, the, you know, plate tectonics, the, those sorts of things are, are, as far as we know, required for the world to actually flourish and go on, many of those. It's only evil when people are in the, we say, the wrong place at the wrong time. When there's that intersection, that's when we put that, kind of, because it was destructive on, on something of value, like a person. And so um, a question that the Christian worldview asks is, in, in sort of better understanding natural evil, is this. Track with me here. Collectively, humanity, what if we're not operating in our environment, our world, whatever that might be, in the way we were intended to? Uh, let, let me put that another way. Collectively, what if, what if not being in the right relationship with God collectively that we are intended to be doesn't allow us to operate in our environment? Let me, let me give you kind of an analogy or, or, or a picture of maybe um, a little more concrete on that. Um, you know what a feral child is? Uh, Tarzan... Mowgli in the uh, Jungle Book. Okay? Feral child is someone who from a very young age, maybe through abandonment, maybe through just running away because of abuse, whatever it might be, but they're basically separated from, human, from the normal human parental relationships and other relationships around them to care for them. And so they're taken out of the family. Very little interaction with... Um, uh, human care, behavior, how should you behave, language, all those sorts of things, right? And, um, but then, imagine if that child is taken from the normal uh, situation, it's a feral child, um, but then was made, or that they were made for, but then asked to live in its natural environment. A little child in a house, so to speak, all by itself, right? You can imagine what would happen. Um, if you think about that way, the child wouldn't be able to do well because it's outside the normal nurturing relationships. It wouldn't be able to function well in its environment. So um, could it be that for us, we're not in 
relationship with God as we were intended to be collectively, I'm speaking. So we find it difficult to operate in the environment that we were supposed to be in, what's natural and intended for us. Um, Let me give you just kind of one tiny, um, this is speculative, (laughs) but it's kind of pointing in that that direction. Uh, I don't know if you remember back in 2004, in fact, it was the day after Christmas, 2004, when the tsunami hit Southeast Asia. Um, And um, what was so fascinating, I remember reading about this, when the tsunami hit Sri Lanka, either none or almost none, I can't remember, almost no animals died. Now, the reason why we know this is because of Rayleigh waves. Rayleigh waves are vibrational waves from the tsunami that reached the coast hours ahead of time. And it gave the animals this impetus to turn away from the ocean and to run the opposite direction. And so by the time the water hit the shore, the animals were up high and very, very safe. Unfortunately, human persons, they actually actually ran down to the coast, down to the beach, to look at the receding water, being unaware of what was happening. Uh, Sri Lankan authorities reported in January of that next year that over 30,000 human lives were lost, plus over 30,000 lives. Now, interestingly, studies show that human persons have uh, sensors in their joints and that they can actually detect vibrational waves. But, we de- but when we detect them and when they do research and when they ask, what are you feeling? People go, oh, I don't know, I just feel weird. Oh, I don't know, I just don't like this room. Those are the kinds of responses that people are able to assess. Animals are functioning in a way, here's the point, Animals are functioning in a way that allows them to realize there's danger and to realize we got to go, <laughs> right? We are not functioning in a way we were intended to in our natural environment at who knows what levels. We don't even know, but we know it's like I don't fit. Something's off. Something's disjointed, but I'm, I'm, I'm not functioning in the way I, I, intend, I was intended to be because there's something broken or flawed. That's the assumption you make. And of course, Scripture's answer is, yeah, our hearts are broken. I am disconnected from God. And the ripple effect of that is something that I can't even comprehend. I can't even figure out why. So I think this is one very interesting way, it's speculative, right? but of looking at, I wonder at what level the brokenness between human people and God has affected us even in our environment. So because we're, we're not in the primary relationship that we were intended to be in, we're not functioning well in the environment. That's sort of a first observation. Again, you could say so much more about that. Um, if our first parents had not rebelled and had properly taken, remember they were commanded to take dominion of the earth as God instructed, I think Scripture's answer is if that had happened, we would be in a more harmonious relationship with nature. If we were unencumbered by sin and had the capacity to either control 
or avoid the ravages of natural disasters. And if you think about it, that's, that's what the author of Genesis is hinting at, I believe. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, he says, God blessed them, this is our first parents, Adam and Eve, and said to them, be fruitful, increase in number, fill the earth and... Huh. If the earth were perfect, why would you need to subdue it? The whole point is it wasn't. Genesis 1, when it talks about creation, the language he uses in Genesis, like 1 1 says, the earth was formless and void, a lot of our. The language there is like wild and woolly. <laughs> it, it was not hospitable to human life. That, that's the earth's natural condition, according to the author of Genesis. And then he says, and then what God does is he plants a garden. It's this like oasis kind of thing. And, and, and the garden is God's space. It's sacred space. That's where he lives. And then he says, and then he places the human family in there with him. And then he says, guess what we're going to do to the rest of the earth? Make it like this. That's their call. Have dominion and subdue isn't to abuse or destroy. It's to say, let's make it like a garden. That's why the end, end of the book of Revelation, what... What is it? It's a garden city. <laughs> but God does it because he realizes these people never will. They can't. <laughs> but that's the end game. So what would have happened had we never sinned? Who knows? Who knows what that would have been like? But it would have been involved somehow subduing this wild and woolly world <laughs> that God gave us. Interesting. Another observation about natural evil <clears throat> Um, natural evil is compounded by moral evil. We tend to speak of natural evil and moral evil as like two totally separate categories that never come in contact with each other. Nope, they're actually... Moral evil compounds and is, is like tied together with uh, natural evil. I'll give you two different ways that that's the case. <clears throat> Number one, um, natural evil is compounded by moral evil by rebellious, malevolent, spiritual beings. Uh, we're not the only ones God created. Um, think about it this way. We as human persons have an impact on the environment and the cre lower creatures, you could say. Does that make sense? The way you treat the environment has an impact on the lower creatures in that same <clears throat> environment. Um, how we affect the environment will determine how the lower species in that same environment are treated. Well, we also know Psalm 8, chapter 5, the psalmist tells us humanity was created a little lower than the Elohim. Oftentimes it's translated angel. The word is Elohim. It means these spiritual beings. We've been created a little lower than the spiritual family, whatever that is. And so there's like a tapestry to creation. Number one, we're understanding that. We also know from Deuteronomy 32, 8 and 9 that God early on put some of those spiritual beings in charge of caring for some of the human families, the nations. But we also know from uh, Psalm 82, because Psalm 82 is, is God standing in that council and condemning them. It says, though you are Elohim, you're going to die like men. Because these Elohim did not take care of people. They, they, in fact, did the exact opposite. They were actively working against them. So we know that 
it's, it's clouded by that natural evil is influenced or webbed together with at some level um, moral evil of malevolent spiritual beings. Number two, that uh, there's also natural evil is intertwined and bound up with human evil. Um, millions of East African communities uh, face famine and starvation, not because there are inadequate relief supplies that can meet their needs. Instead, it's because of these dictatorial governments that use food as a political weapon to crush the um, rebel resistance, and so they don't allow the food in. That's shown all the time. South America is a great example of this, or Haiti, where these natural disasters like earthquakes and hurricanes and that sort of thing, they, they occur, but the human misery and, and suffering is so much greater because of the poverty in which the people live, the substandard housing that they have, the structures. Why is that? Well, it's because the Latin America has been completely exploited over these years by elitist, upper-class, corrupt government officials who have almost absolute power. You've, you've probably heard the phrase, Lord Acton said it. He said, power tends to corrupt. Absolute power corrupts absolutely. And the notion of limited government never made its way to Latin America. So as a result of that, you have the corruption of socialism and big government, which has just destroyed these communities in ways that you can't imagine. It's interesting, there's a, um, a, an author, he's a professor and an author named uh, Lawrence Harrison. And he wrote a book called Who Prospers? And uh, Lawrence Harrison became a professor at Harvard after spending much of his life in Latin America uh, doing um, like economic uh, work down there. And um, in, this, in this book, he says something really interesting. He says there's a lot of differences between Latin America and, and North America, specifically the United States. But he says one of the biggest differences from down there is what he calls familism. Familism. Familism is discrimination based on family. And so this is what he said. Here in America, um, if you can do the job better, you get the job. Down there in that culture, familism is the idea of you can get the job if you're related to me or if you're related to my wife. So you get it first. doesn't matter if you're competent. That's very common in the world. Uh, Saddam Hussein did that all the time. We're very well known for that. So while we tend to think of natural evil and moral evil as being, again, these very separate things, oh, they're very intertwined, very intertwined. Twined. So let's jump back. Luke chapter 13. Jesus answered, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. Or the 18 who died in the Tower of Siloam fell on them. Do you think they were more guilty? than all others living in Jerusalem. I tell you no, but unless you repent, you too will <clears throat> perish. That's interesting. Jesus almost doesn't, which this is common Jesus. He's asked a question about something or asked to notice something, and he kind of 
He notices it, but he, he turns it, he sidesteps it. He asks, he says, better que- I've got a better question. <laughs> he's, he's always doing that sort of thing, and he's, he's doing it here as well. But it feels almost harsh, doesn't it? I mean, it's, it, it's sort of like they're wanting him to look at tragedy, and he's like, worse is going to happen to you if you don't. <laughs> it's, it, it just feels weird. It's jarring as you read this, but this is, this is what's happening. So is it that Jesus is, just doesn't really care about people who die in these tragic deaths? Um, is he sort of just sort of thoughtless about that? I don't think so. Because all the other times we see Jesus, he notices people who are in great need, and they're always like the ones that no one else pays attention to. And like a magnet, he seems to be attracted to them. He's hypersensitive for suffering. We read things like, he was moved with compassion. So it doesn't line up just to think, well, gosh, you know, the guy was just sort of insensitive. Maybe he's having a bad day. Maybe he got up you know, the wrong side of the bed. And it was just, no, I don't think so, because he's adjusting the conversation. See, Jesus responds by changing the substance of what they're talking about. He says, I like where you're going, but I want you to go one step deeper. I want you to look at something. So he he adjusts the meaning of the question. They point to a tragedy, right? And Jesus says, while we're talking tragedies, ooh, I like you brought that up. (laughs) But look at these tragedies. Yeah, you want to know even a potential worse one? You want to talk about tragedies? See, the reason these tragic events are so jarring, you, you hear someone's lost. Um, I had a friend who just went out to um, uh, South Dakota a week ago. This was on the news, and I saw this kind of horrific video. Her, her, her cousin's father-in-law was driving, and the truck and big trailer just got sucked up into um, a tornado got taken like 250 yards over a cliff, just smashed, and he was dead. Just gone like that. No goodbye. And it was just rocked the family, as you, can, as you can imagine. There's something about tragic events that, that are jarring to us, but here's the thing. They expose our mortality. They expose our mortality. Death exists in a fallen world, but nothing exposes our morality more than a death that's it's sudden, it's immediate. You know, they should have lived so much longer, or you know, this shouldn't have happened. And Jesus argues that what should be contemplated even more than, and we naturally know that. We are like animals in that. Man, the second, you know, tragedy strikes, we feel, we react. But he says, the way, though, that you need to act differently you need to contemplate even more than the cutting off of, say, a, a short life, but is the fact that life terminates for all of us. And this raises an even more basic question. What comes after that? And that's where Jesus goes, if you read the rest of the story. How does one prevent the end from being the ultimate end? That's the question he wants them to look at. Not just, yeah, that's sad, but how does a person prevent that end not from being the ultimate end? The question about mortality really becomes a question about the possibility of what Scripture in the book of Revelation calls the second death. 
That's the one that Jesus is emphasizing here. And then he pleads with his audience to repent. He pleads with them to repent. And he does it in very strong ways. He points, or his point, is that with death comes a decisive encounter with God. And one that deals with sin. Deals with our sin. Whether one is, and this was the point of his earlier stuff, whether one was a little sinner, was that person guilty? Were they more guilty than the rest of the people in Jerusalem? Or if they were a big sinner? (laughs) Doesn't matter your level. That was his point in bringing that in. Well, do you think they were worse than everyone else? Nope. Everyone is going to stand before, everyone, every single person (laughs) is going to stand before God and give an account in their life. Daryl Bach, uh, he's, a, he's a Bible commentator, he, he writes this, what Jesus has in mind is that change of direction that comes from a change of orientation after hearing God's messenger. Before a person repents, they're not concerned about being related rightly to God. With repentance comes a change of mind that affects a change of direction because their orientation of life is directed in faith to God. That is why he ends by saying this. That is why the Old Testament concept of repentance uses a term that describes a turning around. Because it's, I have my back toward God, and all of a sudden I turn, and I realize he's right there. He's right in my face. (laughs) There's a, um, uh, I was just talking about it with, Todd earlier, there's an article that I came across. I, I would, if I could get it to you, I would, I would highly encourage you to search um, Catherine Baker with a K. Catherine Baker, uh, a short article she wrote um, called A Pandemic Observed. Catherine Baker, A Pandemic Observed. Um, this is, it's an article that I came across. I wish I could. It's probably a 10-minute read. I wish I could read the whole thing to you. I can't. Let me read the first paragraph and tell you generally where she's going. Hopefully, it won't be too much of a spoiler for you. She says this, wonderful writer. She says, We buried my baby in a wooden box in the crook of the arm of his father. My husband was 37 and had died in a car accident coming home from his work as an Orthodox priest in a sudden snowstorm on a Sunday afternoon in March. My son was born at 20 weeks gestation, about two weeks before his father's death, but the ground was too frozen to bury him in the cemetery plot just then, so the funeral home offered to keep the tiny body until spring. But when his father died too, it was considered worth the use of the special machines to thaw the ground for a winter burial in New England. And so there was some comfort in knowing that the two would lie together. And then she goes on in a beautiful way, I hope you will read it, talking about the, the details of this, what happened with this car crash, and she has six other kids, and her life and her mourning and her anger with God and her frustration, the arguments that she has with God. <laughs> and then COVID-19 hit, it's called a pandemic observed. 
And she said, we found out very early on that three of my kids and I had been exposed to someone who had it. You know, we're counting numbers every day, and it's scary. She said, we quarantined. And she said, I just thought, who's going to be next? You know, just kind of waiting. <clears throat> and um, she says, um, as, she was, as she was waiting, she said, it, it became interesting. She said, I started learning there was this new language out there <clears throat> that we must have, death will never happen. And we must do whatever it takes, whatever it takes. In fact, she says this, as I watched the pandemic and lockdown play out, observing it from a place of intimacy with death and mourning, very often I wondered if that was the case for our leaders and decision makers. She said, it appeared to me death was being approached officially as an uh, anomaly, excuse me, instead of a certainty. A disease was being treated like a strange exception rather than the rule. And a woman who was so familiar with death, as she was looking at this, began to realize, as Christians, well, all of us know the day is coming. <laughs> the day will come when I breathe my last. And our, our culture has almost created this conception of we're going to avoid it at all costs, no matter what. Even if you have to live a miserable life, at least it'll be long. <laughs> and she was saying, as Christians, I'm called to love the stranger. I'm called to love, even if it's dangerous for me. I'm called to care for them. I'm called to serve them. Fully aware it could be a dangerous call in my life. And she ends with this question where she says, the question isn't, will I die? Or will the people I love die? The answer to that has always been yes. A better question might be, Will I let the anticipation of death make me and my world better or worse? And she, had a, she asked these beautiful, again, please read it. It's absolutely wonderful. She asks these wonderful probing questions. She kind of gives a, a theological grounding for being the church in a pandemic. <laughs> but it was this reminder to me of, of what I think Jesus was reminding. She did it much more gently. Jesus did it very abruptly. <laughs> She's reminding them that the day is coming. It will come. And in light of that, how are you living? What are you doing? Listen to <clears throat> Psalm chapter 90. I, I, I love this phrase. <clears throat> this is Moses writing in, in Psalm 90, and he says, teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. That's an interesting connection I never would have thought of. Teach me to number my days, and as a result, I will, I will gain a heart of wisdom. Ooh, that sounds good. I'd like that. <laughs> There's something about that. You know what I would encourage you to do? Go to a funeral at least once a year. I'm, and I'm dead serious. Oh, that, that's pun. No pun intended. Seriously, I didn't realize. I was, I'm very serious. I really didn't mean to say that. <clears throat> Go to a funeral once a year. Go to a funeral twice a year, if you can. There is something about when I go, and I don't like going to funerals. There's something about when I go to a funeral, uh, I start numbering my days. I start going, where am I putting my time? What has God called me to? Am I being obedient to that? What is my calling? What about my kids, family members, friendships? What's going to be said at my, all these questions. Same questions that Jesus wanted the, his hearers to go, I like that you're bothered by that, but are you looking beyond that? Are you asking those questions beyond it? 
Listen to um, Ecclesiastes 7.2. It's kind of a similar phrase as, hey, go to a... So I, I didn't come up with the idea of go to a funeral. Ecclesiastes 7.2, he says, it is better to go to a house of mourning than a house of feasting. That means a funeral. It's better to go to a funeral than a party. I promise it'll be more impactful on you, is his point. One of, one of my favorite authors is a 17th century uh, Frenchman named Blaise Pascal. He was a mathematician. He was a brilliant mathematician, absolute genius. He was a physicist. He was a Christian thinker. And he lived in France during a time where things were very opulent. And when you're in a culture where things are opulent, you don't number your days a whole lot. You don't think about it a whole lot. You probably can't imagine living in a very materialistic culture where you don't think about your days a lot. And he was so bothered, and so he wrote to skeptics. He wrote to people who were just, not interested. Those were the people he was trying to reach, and he said, here's here's what I've discovered about our culture. People have at some point realized there's a cliff that I'm driving up to. Death is coming. They have no abilities to deal with it, no resources to say, how do I do this? What, what, What do I do? What's going on? And so they distract themselves. They they amuse themselves. You know what amuse means? Muse means to think. Awe is the negation of it. They amuse themselves so that they don't have to think about the approaching cliff in that way. And so he said this. He says, in busyness, that's one thing that people do too. Just stay busy so, I don't, so you don't have to think about it. Never let it be quiet. In busyness, we have a narcotic to keep us from brooding and to take our mind off our mortality. Ever thought about the narcotic of busyness? Is that in your life anywhere? Are you you engaging with the the narcotic of busyness at whatever level? Or can you sit in a quiet room or do those thoughts just, that come? You don't like them. Jesus wants to meet you in the quiet moment. He wants to meet you in the quiet thought. He wants to have moments with you where it's quiet and you just listen. And maybe he doesn't talk. Maybe he just says, I just want to be with you. Just realize I am in the presence. I'm in your presence more than you can imagine. Just be with me. Maybe he does talk. Maybe maybe you say, speak, I'm listening. What do you want to say? But in our culture, much like this culture, much like Pascal's culture, it's so frantic, it's so fast-paced, it's so busy, there's social media, there's sound, there's sound, there's sound. And sometimes when we're pointing out the latest crazy thing that happened, Jesus goes, stop. (laughs) How's your heart doing? What's going on with your heart? That's what I want to talk to you about. It's far more important than the latest tweet, I promise you. It's so eternal. Over these next couple minutes, we're going to take communion. If you're comfortable taking it, if not, you certainly do not have to. But here's what I would invite you to do. Step into one of those moments. Just ask, ask God by his spirit. Just say, would you be with me over these next couple moments before we take communion? Maybe, maybe talk to me. Maybe you just want to put your arm around with me and just be with me. I'll take that. That's okay, too. And just see what happens. So come grab the elements. Don't take them. Hold on to them. 
after this song, um, we'll all take it together. Okay? Go ahead. You're released. There's different stations around the room, too, and gluten-free in the back here. It's because of the reality behind these elements that we hold that we can say those words and not be liars. I stand here unashamed. And it says, God greets me face to face. Wow. That's because of the sacrifice of Jesus. And each week we remind ourselves of the way in which God has opened that door for us to be back in sacred space in his presence. And that's because of the broken body of Jesus for us. Let's take the bread. And that's because of his shed blood spilled for us, cleansing us. Let's take the cup. Amen. I leave you with this benediction. My prayer for you and for me this week is that you would be taught how to number your days and as a result, you would find a heart of wisdom forming inside you. Amen? Amen. Love being with you guys, as always. Thanks for being here. See you next Wednesday.